millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrednach, a historian with the biggest ever taste for obscene reading. Casement fans will know exactly what I mean. If you like the show... Please tell a friend, share a link, leave a review, whatever you fancy. This episode is part one of a deep dive into the life and many afterlives of Roger Casement, a martyr from the 1916 Rising. He was executed by the British state in August 1916 for treason and his body buried in Pentonville Jail. In 1965, his remains were dug up and he was given an Irish state funeral and reburied in Dublin's Glass Nevin. In my head, I've subtitled the casement debacle Bones and Boners. So this episode is about the boners. Next time, we'll talk about the bones. To be honest, they're closely related. Casement's dead body is inextricably linked to images of his lusting living body. Now, if you know absolutely nothing about Roger Casement, you should know that apart from being a martyr of the 1916 Rising, he's famous for being gay. Or not. Which is why there is a mini-industry of Casement studies. Apparently, if you're obsessed with him, you're called a Casemental. Casemental or not, it's important to know that he was a divine-looking man. Everyone agreed that he was gorgeous and often remarked on his attractive voice. You could argue he was the finest half who ever laid down his life for the cause of Irish freedom. Now, I haven't chosen him as a subject just so I could browse all those images online, trying to choose my favourite angle. Yes, he was a snack, but this episode will be about censure and censorship, both together and sort of separately. There's a lot going on with this story. I might struggle to fit it into two episodes. I'm leaving loads out, like you can go read about Roger Casement and all of this scandal for days on end. There's a lot to say about the biography of the man himself. He was a crusading humanitarian and a British diplomat. In 1903, he wrote a report on the Congo Free State that documented the horrific exploitation of African people by their European colonisers. In 1910, he wrote about the Putumayo region of Peru and how rubber was commercially extracted using forced labour and violence towards the Indian population. In both cases, his reports caused international furore and led, eventually, to some curtailment of the genocidal violence endured by these people. Casement received royal honours for these reports, becoming a sir in 1911. 
Parallel to all of this humanitarian work, he slowly evolved into an ardent Irish nationalist and in 1914 helped to organise a shipment of guns to Ireland. When the First World War started, he travelled to Germany to ask for help for the Irish to overthrow British rule. He toured prisoner of war camps, looking for recruits from men enlisted in the British Army who would be willing to fight for Irish freedom. He wasn't very successful, and so he had to give up eventually. He returned to Ireland in 1916 in a German submarine, but he was three days too early for the Easter Rising. Roger Casement was arrested on a County Kerry beach in April 1916 and then taken to London for trial. Unlike the other 1916 leaders, Pierce and the rest of them, he was not court-martialed by the military. His was a civil trial in a proper court in London, all above board, apparently. He was found guilty in July and hanged in August 1916. Obviously, this is all very exciting, but perhaps not much more interesting than the rest of the 1916 story. What's so special about Casement that I struggle to get it into just two episodes? It really centres on the documents that circulated at the time of his trial. According to the police and intelligence service, these were extracts from Casement's personal diaries. Now, they were never formally part of the trial itself. They never appeared in court or were referred to by the prosecution or defence counsel. These documents were actually leaked by the prosecution to various select individuals within London, and on the basis of that, a lot of rumours about Casement were spread. The documents were leaked because the government wanted to undermine sympathy for Casement. The extracts of the alleged diaries showed that Casement was gay. And ever since 1916, the controversy around Casement still hinges on one question. Was he really gay? Actually, no, I'm probably being too direct. I'm extrapolating. To be strictly factually accurate in pedantic historian style, the debate about Casement is, are the diaries that the British government alleged belonged to him real or fake? Did Roger Casement write the three little books that were apparently seized in 1916 as part of the investigation into his treasonous activities? Did he write all of the texts, or only bits of them? This is a contentious issue because scattered throughout these diaries were references to sex with men and boys. The last diary, from 1911, is particularly explicit. So if Casement wrote the diaries himself, he was definitely gay. Even if you believe these were fantasies rather than real-life sexual encounters, you would have to admit he was gay. 100% shagging or dreaming about shagging fellas. And that's why I think my first question is an accurate summary. To ask if Roger Casement was gay makes sense in the context of the whole debate that's going on around these diaries. And just to be clear, I do think he was gay, and I do think the diaries were written by him. But more on my reasons for believing that later. Those who believe the opposite, that the diaries were a forgery, believe that it is of paramount importance to prove, once and for all, that they were faked by the British government. To those who read the extracts in 1916, these diaries proved that Casement was, in the language of the time, an immoral pervert afflicted with poison or a disease. Now, you know that sex between men was illegal, so the diaries also showed he was a criminal. 
and the decision to leak these diaries was taken at the highest level of government. One of those involved in circulating the diary extracts was the Attorney General for England, a member of the Cabinet who was also the prosecuting counsel in the casement trial. Unequivocally, this was a dirty trick designed to damage the defendant's reputation and scare his friends away. It worked. Influential people refused to be publicly associated with the campaign to save Casement from the gallows. Rumours in London's clubland about his sex life undermined any criticism of the trial. American support dried up once the diary extracts circulated in Washington. Nobody wanted to stand alongside a man whose sex life they considered depraved. He couldn't be wronged by the justice system if he himself was a wrong'un. Unfortunately, just like now, people in 1916 liked their heroes squeaky clean. Now, before I get into the weeds of this, and like there are a lot of weeds, I want to talk about what's in the diaries. Because I'm dedicated to reading out the filth, I couldn't miss an opportunity to read some of it out to you. As for a drink to accompany the diaries, I'm going to have to go for tonic water for the quinine. Roger Caseman took a lot of it in his life to ease his tropical fevers. When he landed in Kerry that cold April morning in 1916, he was weak from a reoccurrence of malaria. Maybe they didn't have any tonic on the submarine. Of course, I'm cutting my tonic with gin, but I know some of you weirdos out there think it's tasty on its own, so knock yourselves out. The first diary I'm quoting from is the earliest one, from 1903. I'm using the text edited by Seamus O'Sheachoin and Michael O'Sullivan from 2003. This is a complete, unabridged version that pays close attention to how the diaries look in their original form. That's a hard thing to do, because it was handwritten in a small bound volume that was laid out as a diary, as you would expect, with day and date entries. But Casement didn't stick rigidly to those date entries. He glossed each day with names, numbers and letters, so around the little box of text he put little notes. He wrote mostly in pencil, but also in black, blue and red ink. The editors tried to translate this format into a regular printed book while preserving a sense of it as a rough diary. I think they did a good job. It reads as a set of notes written by Casement to Casement. They chose not to explain every reference in the entry, so as you read it, you're guessing about what he means. I felt more like a decipherer than a reader. This seems like an accurate representation of the type of text it was. I mean, a personal diary evolves its own codes and shorthand. And just an FYI, in their opening introduction, the editors state they believe the diaries were authentic. So if you want to place them on the political spectrum of pro or anti-forgery, they're anti-forgery. Right, that's, that's just enough context. On to the smut. This is an entry from Monday the 2nd of March, 1903, when Casement was in Madeira. I'll read it in its entirety, not just the smutty lines. Went up to Monte with the Joneses. Laura Lady Wilton there. Delightful. Beautiful creature by stream coming down, at train lines. Called on Spence, not in, on Hogue. Nineteen cigarettes club foot. Went casino, lost about three dollars, Connolly to dinner. Then cafe, evening and square, turned in early. I know, you're like, what the fuck, there is no smut in that. This seems like I'm leading you on a merry dance. In this entry, it's a boring day of meeting people and being a tourist. But hidden in there, 
When you read it again and think about it, there are sexual references. The first and the mildest is Beautiful Creature by Stream Coming Down at Train Lines. Here, Casement was spotting the cute guys as he goes about his day, sights that he thinks are as important as the scenery. Maybe this beautiful creature smiled at him, gave him a look that suggested he reciprocated Casement's interest. Or maybe it was just one of those moments where someone hot catches your eye. It was just a fleeting glimpse, but memorable enough to go in the diary. In lots of entries, Casement is admiring beautiful fellas. He mostly calls them types or just beautiful. Now you could argue there's nothing in this one diary entry to say that this beautiful creature isn't a woman. But of course, one diary entry really isn't enough. You have to read more of them. And there is a coded reference to a sexual encounter in this entry, when he writes, 19 cigarettes clubfoot. This is written in black ink, while the rest of the day's entry is in pencil. So as he read back over it, Casement's eye could have read it like a bold text. Geoffrey Dudgeon, in his edition of the diaries, argues that this is a reference to a sexual partner. Perhaps a 19-year-old with a club foot whom he paid in cigarettes. But it's an oblique enough reference that a casual reader, who just might open the diary accidentally, would miss it. And it's buried in the midst of the most mundane information. That's what I like about this full edition. It shows how his sex life was part of his day, how his attractions were as commonplace to him as who he met socially. That's the pattern throughout. He doesn't segregate his sex life from the rest of the stuff he's up to. So if you're looking for filth, you have to read a lot about gambling, sailing on ships and lost luggage. So here's another entry from Monday the 23rd of March 1903 when he's in Tenerife. Reading Burroughs' book and wrote to Spence about Basket and to Davy at War Office. Wired again to Las Palmas about Basket. Enormous at one o'clock in Square. Lunched with Camberlin at Paris Rest. Then to Camochus where I met Sir M. Errol MacDonald with Croker. Home to lie down. Dined with Olson's nice waiters. After to Plaza Weller and whip in hand to Avida. By New Road X. Mu nua ami mulami mandi matura iremba. Giddy kli. 25 note and 13 pesetas. Right, there's a lot there, isn't there? The line enormous at one o'clock should jump out at you. Casement was a size queen. He's always commenting on how big penises are. In this entry, that line was added in fade pencil between the lines, like he had finished writing, then came back and added it in in the right place in the day's events. I don't know, did he have a shag in the middle of the day in the town square? Or was he a specialist in estimating the size of men's penises through their pants? Who knows? And then the next entry that suggests sex is at the very end, and it starts by New Road X. A lot of times there are X's marked either next to the date or in the middle of an entry. This has been interpreted to refer to sex. And it's interesting that immediately after the X, Casement switches language. Those words that I mangled at the end, because I have no idea what they sound like, are from Kikongo, a language used in the Congo. So the translation given in this edition of that sentence is his sperm in my mouth. Pretty unambiguous smut there, once you know the language. The entry then ends with 25 note and 13 pesetas. 
Is this a payment for sex or how much he had left in his wallet? Can't be sure, I suppose. And this entry has further notes on the side. On either side of the date is written, Young, fair hair, blue eyes, brown clothes, about 17. Was this the person he had X with or was this the enormous in the town square? Either way, it's pretty clear this entry is peppered with references to gay sex. And in fact, it's framed by that, with the description written either side of the date. But like almost all the entries in the 1903 diary, sex is only part of what Casement wrote down. He recorded what he did each day, who he met, the books he read, the places he visited. And then he added in who he shagged, what they looked like, or their names, or how much money was exchanged. Most of the sex that Casement is having is commercial sex. The sexual material wasn't always as easy to read as the rest of the entry. He often switched to other languages like Portuguese or Kikongo, and he gave men codenames or nicknames. When he wrote about the size of penises, he did not write the word penis, for example. He just wrote enormous or huge or biggest. He recalled beautiful types, but not beautiful men. So he's being frank, but not explicit. A casual reader might not see through this basic concealment. But if you approach the text knowing there might be gay sex in it, you can pretty much translate and read it as referring to gay sex. So that's the 1903 diary. The 1910 diary is a lot more obvious. And the edition I'm using here is Geoffrey Dudgeon's one. And unlike O'Shea and O'Sullivan, it's heavily glossed. So after everything that needs an explanation, there are square brackets in which the author explains the lineage of the people referred to and his interpretation of what X might mean or enormous or clubfoot. So it's a very different reading experience. I felt I was much more reading Dudgeon's version of Casement than Casement's version of himself. Anyway, it opens on the 13th of January 1910 with this entry. Gabriel Ramos, X, Deep to Hilt. Last time, palpitito at Barca, at 11.30. To Ikari, precisa muito, $15 or $20. Also on Barca, the young caboclo, thin, dark gentleman of Ikarini. Eyed constantly and wanted. Would have gone but Gabriel Quirido, waiting at Barca gate. Palpito in very deep thrusts. Well, I don't know about you, but very deep thrusts is pretty unambiguous, as is deep to the hilt. You'll be thrilled to know that there was an event marking the 100-year anniversary of 1916 on the Kerry Beach where Casement was captured, and the performers wore t-shirts that said deep to the hilt. As you can imagine, the family audience were not very impressed. This isn't the only entry that's quite obvious what he's talking about. There are lots of them and Gabrielle appears a few times after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I'm just going to skip forward to the 21st of May 1910, when Casement is in Dublin. This is a Saturday and it's a very short entry. In Dublin, in Phoenix Park and Lovely, at X where F. Cavendish killed. If we accept that X means sex, well, then he had a shag in the Phoenix Park. But this entry is worthy of comment because of the way it combines sex and Irish nationalism. Casement was cruising in the Phoenix Park and had a shag at the spot where a famous political murder took place in 1882. The man he refers to, F. Cavendish, was Frederick Cavendish, who, along with his colleague Burke, was stabbed to death by men from the Invincibles, a violent nationalist organisation. I'm not going to go into detail about this particular incident. It's not really relevant to the whole casement thing. But on the spot where they were attacked is a small, discreet memorial, a cross cut into the grass and filled with gravel. You'd hardly notice it unless you know what to look for. So Casement, soon to be a famous Irish rebel, had unapologetic sex at a spot associated with a violent struggle for independence. Honestly, I think this is fucking hilarious. Everything about this entry is designed to annoy those who think Casement was a paragon of revolutionary virtue. Firstly, he's having gay sex, which a lot of people find confusing. Secondly, he's doing it in places associated with the great struggle. And thirdly, he treats this with casual interest, not deep seriousness. Sex, politics, whatever, it's just a day. He's not pious, preachy or earnest. In fact, he's just not taking it seriously enough. Casement may have given a great speech from the dock in 1916, but most of the time he was just a bloke riding other blokes in parks. Yes, he is a hero of the revolution, but what if that heroism is a projection we've put onto him? What if he was his own person, with desires and thoughts that do not fulfil our needs and expectations? For some nationalists, to even say this is heresy. Casement the hero cannot be Casement the man, especially if the man is a size queen with a very active sex life. So that's a few bits from the diaries, documents that blackened Casement's name and reduced public sympathy for him. In 1916, of course, not everyone could read these extracts. Rumour was more important than documentary proof at that time. During the trial, the serious newspapers, the Times of London and Dublin, they never mentioned the diaries, though some of the more tabloid press did drop broad hints. Frankly, it's not surprising it wasn't printed. They would probably have been prosecuted for indecency. That no one had seen the original diaries 
didn't stop people obsessing over the question of authenticity, proof, evidence, truth, all of those big legal concepts. The Irish public needed to know if the diaries were forged, because that would prove that the British were complete arseholes who destroyed a hero's reputation. This particular mindset, of course, can only exist if you believe being accused of being gay is the worst thing that can ever happen to anyone. But in 1959, Caseman studies was changed forever. The British state deposited three bound volumes in the National Archives in London, claiming these were the diaries. So these are the bound handwritten diaries that the various extracts had been typed up or copied from. The forgery debate grew even bigger as interested parties rushed off to read the diaries. Irish newspapers covered this story in detail on a day-by-day, blow-by-blow basis. It was just huge. But access to the documents was still severely restricted. Only vetted researchers were allowed in. So they weren't quite fully public yet. Also in 1959, at the same time, two blokes called Peter Singleton Gates and Maurice Sherodias published The Black Diaries. This was the first time Caseman's diaries had been called black. Before that, nobody had given them a colour at all. It's kind of odd he called them black, given the man's work for people of colour, especially black people in Africa. Anyway, parking that rant for now. Let's just leave it aside. This edition was based on a transcript that Singleton Gates got from a police officer involved in the 1916 investigation. The publisher was Olympia Press, owned by his co-author Maurice Sherodias. This Paris-based press was infamous for publishing daring, obscene and pornographic work. If you're interested in the history of obscenity, you'll come across Olympia Press a lot. Lots of its output appears on the Irish blacklist. You won't be surprised to hear that, obviously. Its books were not the kind that you would actually find on the shelves of a provincial library in rural Ireland. So in 1959, you have original documents appearing in the National Archives and a printed version for sale, published in Paris. In contrast to the big fuss that the Irish papers gave the release of these originals into the archive, the silence that they maintained on the Singleton Gates and Gerodias edition, it's just fascinating. It's hilarious, but perhaps unsurprising that they didn't pay any attention to this publication. They didn't even bother to complain or rant about it. All except the Irish Times, of course, which in typical fashion is pushing the boat out on the whole censorship, how much filth can you talk about, stakes. The newspaper actually ran an ad for the book, emphasising that it was a limited edition of 2,000 copies. So unless you read the Times or borrowed it from someone who did, you wouldn't really know that there was this edition of the Black Diaries, so-called, available to buy. But then it gets even stranger, because the censors didn't blacklist the Singleton Gates edition. This is mysterious to me, because it would certainly qualify as indecent or obscene by their standards. Of course, it's possible that no copies were seized by customs officials. With an imprint like Olympia Press, no one would order it. Does this mean that no one in Ireland had a copy? Who knows? It seems like in this case, censure was doing such an efficient job that censorship wasn't needed. There actually weren't any copies in the hands of people who would complain, who would post it to the censorship board. So there's no prohibition order. There's definitely something going on here. It's very interesting. 
The whole transformation of the Casement controversy in 1959 is just so interesting to me. There's the end of the state secrecy in Britain with the magic appearance of diaries that no one was sure existed until then. And then in Ireland, the press silence around the Singleton Gates version of the diaries. I could think about this for days, lads. But for me, the release of the diaries to the archives is definitive proof that they were genuine. It just doesn't make sense to believe in forgeries at this point. Now, I have to admit that the forgery thesis makes kind of sense in 1916, when those copies of bits of the alleged documents are circulating informally in back channels. It was obviously a mean, rotten, low-down trick played by the British government, so it was perfectly rational to suspect that it was a forgery on top of all of that misbehaviour. Evil Brits gonna be evil Brits, so to speak. Those typewritten transcripts were the best evidence that the British were making it up, because they were just so easy to forge. But consider the diaries in the archives. But consider the diaries in the archives. They're handwritten, with layers of text, scribbles, crossings out, and shorthand. A forgery that big and thorough would have taken ages. It must have been going on after the trial and execution of casement. But really, and I have to ask this, why the fuck would the British government need to forge anything that elaborate? The typewritten extracts had done the job in 1916. I mean, he was dead. If it was all fake, no other documents would ever have been released. It's simply mental to believe they went to the trouble of forging handwritten documents like this. Well, I've gone from 1916 to 1959, powered by quinine and smut. We've covered the boners in great detail now, so next time it'll be the bones. Poor Roger's body was poked and prodded, first buried in quicklime and then fished out of it. It's just a wild story. Wait till you hear it. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds as filthy as Roger Casement's. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 